36 degrees at about uh, five and a half minutes after the hour of nine o'clock. Time for our Phelps Health Program. Uh, Paige Eitman is with you today, and uh, no summer today. What's up with that? I know you're stuck with me today, Lee. Uh, what well, a I bummer! Love, I, love, I love you. You're fantastic. <laughs> you know, but I'm not summer. You know, I'm not sure about her. Yeah, but, you're used to having a blonde on the show. Now you're uh, stuck uh, with a brunette, right? Uh, yeah, well, that's true. I must say, but no, you're fine. You're, you're doing a great yeah, job, yeah. and you have a guest today too. Yes, right? yes, I do. So today on our Ask a Professional show, we have Dr. Thomas Guerrero Garcia, who's a medical oncologist, hematologist with the Phelps Health Medical Group. So welcome to our show today. I think this is your first time on, correct? Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very pleased to be here. Yeah, we're really, really excited to have you. So before we dive into our topic of prostate cancer today, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I come with a background of uh, Spanish family. Did my um, medical school really back uh, in South America in a little country called Ecuador out of the Galapagos Island. And uh, I did medical school there for, for almost seven years. It has a different system than the American uh, medical school system. Uh, Quite unique in the way of the last year reaching out to a community and feeling that um, uh, that uh, background of education really in the community at the end of the year and uh, that was very special for me I felt always uh, more interested in small communities going out there when you had the capacity at the very end to really treat people and and learn more about small communities and that was a big difference and uh, for me um, after that, my dream was uh, always to learn more about um, more complex diseases such as cancer. And for that, I knew that I had to go out from, um, from Ecuador because the training there was not the one that I wanted. And so I figured out why not come into uh, the best place in the world to get training. So that's why I came to the United States, thankfully, and was blessed to um, get training uh, residency in, uh, in, in, in Rhode Island, a very good hospital, and later on moving on to Boston when I did my cancer training and um, and so I was blessed to be there and, and from there here. Yeah, so you mentioned small communities. Is that kind of what brought you here to Rolla, Missouri, yeah, your love I, of small community? I, I think part of, of growing up in, uh, I, I was born in a major city and the trainings were in the major cities. But again, after that, just going and reaching out to small communities saw a big difference and I kind of like that. Uh, kind of like to put my training, put my efforts and and all the training that I had into small communities and so um, a difference so a different also type of, um, of how people think or how you approach the patients uh, and I like that and so um, that's why when I came to Phelps I found that kind of unique yeah I think our DDCI is, is very unique here we do a really great job of connecting with our patients and and kind of what you were saying and really making a difference in the community so we're really glad to have you here today to talk about prostate cancer, um, which is kind of what we're going to be diving into. So let's just go ahead and get started. What does a prostate do? <clears throat> yeah, so prostate is a, it's a organ that is part of the male reproductive system. Most of the times what it does, it just helps uh, make some of the fluid that is in, in the semen. The semen, it's a fluid that will be, you know, carrying um, the sperm. The sperm will be in the testicles and after a male, um, uh, will ejaculate that well that the prostate will help with that ejaculation and that fluid uh, most of the issues that then will go on with will be a, a more mechanical issue as as we age normally uh, the prostate will enlarge and just by that mechanism you start having some issues uh, not everybody but some issues that we will then start understanding why 
So what are some of those issues that happen with the prostate? Normally speaking, as we age, and probably this is around the age of um, more than, the, more really 40 and beyond, more getting into the 60s and beyond, in which obviously as the prostate enlarge, it will start almost blocking, you know, the urethra. And what is the urethra? That's another organ part of the male reproductive system in which if you think about where the prostate is located, it's resting just underneath the bladder, but also has surrounded and passing through the urethra, which is where you will um, have, um, it's the organ in which pee will just go through. Mm -hmm. So as a male um, a person is peeing, it's going through the urethra. And prostate is just around, it's just rounding the, that male organ. And so when it's enlarged, you could see how it could eventually potentially just block that pathway. Yeah, and, and it can if, cause problems with urination, correct? And so immediately, yes, correct, Paige. I think, you know, immediately you can sense what the problem is going to be. Blockage, difficulty with the streaming of the urine, difficulty with patients, you know, having symptoms such as burning um, or urinating more at night or having difficulty with just emptying the bladder, feeling fullness after, you know, going to the... Uh, and using the bathroom. So all of those issues, we start to understand that at that age. So whenever men have prostate issues, will they always get symptoms or are some of them asymptomatic and they just never know? You know, it's quite interesting. Um, we, we normally, even today, as age goes by, you think, to, you think of these symptoms and these processes of uh, the prostate, it's just getting large. But often, we don't find necessarily all the symptoms that I'm just describing. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't know why some males will have more, you know, predisposition to have these symptoms either later on or early on in life. Uh, but it's something that it's a quite interesting observation that you made. So um, you mentioned age too. Does age have something to do with the enlarged prostate? And at what age should um, men start making sure that they check for that? Yeah, I think it's a very intelligent question. Here we have, you know, an average uh, of an age. And I think, you know, once you hit uh, around 60 years old, I think most of us will potentially have some of these symptoms, maybe not at the point that they're really disturbing you, mm -hmm. but maybe to the point that you, you feel a difference, but they're not really disturbing you. I think after that age and going older, as we get older, I think definitely there is more predisposition to have these symptoms in which you will be bothersome by those symptoms. So uh, probably at that time you do feel the symptoms and you're bothered by the symptoms, then you call your primary care doctor and have yourself uh, checked. Does family history have anything to do with having issues with the prostate? Yeah, I think it's a very important uh, question as well. We know nowadays that family history is playing more and more a role, especially when we now dive into the prostate cancer diagnosis. Um, uh, there are certainly populations of, uh, of people that become at risk for prostate cancer. And so family history plays a major role in what we call early diagnosis of prostate cancer and screening of prostate cancer. So whenever we are evaluating that, especially this goes out more to the primary care doctors and also the urologists, they will take a family history uh, very much dedicated to know if that patient in front of you would really need that, you know, 
prostate cancer screening early on versus somebody else which might not have that history and then therefore you don't get that uh, prostate cancer screening. So I think it plays a major role mm -hmm. in trying to know which one you know, has a really positive family history. Let's talk about this idea of nature versus nurture with family history. So if somebody is already predisposed to you know, make sure that they get checked out for prostate cancer, if their family knows this, can they live a healthier lifestyle to kind of mitigate those risks? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I think you know, most of the times what we uh, are gonna add actually end up recommending is that if we do see that risk that we will actually alert that family member about you know the need for early screening and uh and why would be that just we're trying actually to prevent what it seems possibly as a potential you know a person with an early uh, diagnosis of cancer so we want to make changes to the lifestyle of that person we want to recommend what is best for that patient and encourage really a more Kind of healthy and and um, uh, um, uh, an exercise program. Try to really improve the health of that person in order to try to prevent it as much as we can. If they do have the family history, we know that then some action about just going and undergoing testing might be what the the patient mm -hmm. need. But we also focus on their body as a whole in trying to prevent, you know, as much as we can, the, the, the cancer diagnosis. If somebody has a family history of, um, like, prostate cancer, can they get screenings earlier on, kind of like with breast cancer family history? Yeah, I think that's the bottom message here. I think if you do have the family history, we will definitely recommend that early diagnosis and intervention with the testing that we do for prostate cancer might be what we will recommend to somebody mm -hmm. young as opposed to when they don't have that family history that we might not necessarily, you know, uh, do testing early. So I think it, it does matter when we detect the family history. And how common is prostate cancer? Is this something that men really should be concerned about? Well, there's, uh, the numbers are really rising and rising ca and uh, cancer, right, it's, it's rising. And so when you look at actually the three major diagnoses of cancer in men, uh, Obviously, lung cancer will be first, uh, but prostate cancer is just underneath lung cancer as being the most second common uh, cancer every year. We have about probably 100,000 men diagnosed with prostate cancers. And then in terms of mortality and death, it becomes the third cancer after lung and colon cancer in terms of death and mortality. So definitely something very prevalent definitely something that we are seeing every day and so when symptoms uh, are arriving and they're troublesome for people i do recommend they talk to their primary care doctor and um, and go from there so you talked about cancer cases arising overall is there do we know why cancer overall is rising or is it just because we know how to diagnose more more types of cancer I think we learn more um, how to approach, approach patients and, and test them. However, in the current era, I would probably say that if you do a survey between doctors and urologists, they are probably seeing fewer patients. And I will say that because the debate about who will get the PSA testing, it's not easy and straightforward. I mm -hmm. have to say that there are different guidelines and there are different medical societies in which none of them sometimes agree, which is kind mm -hmm. of surprising when you're trying to make a recommendation for your patient. You want all of the societies and all the guidelines agreeing, and you don't find that. So it becomes also for the physician, for the doctor, a little bit challenging. And that's why we take multiple variables, such as age, family, history, and multiple other variables to know that that person in front of you really has to go beyond the recommendations that perhaps 
not everybody will get tested. So currently, the debate of PSA testing, it's a discussion between multiple variables that the physician will actually discuss with the patient, and eventually both, and patient's preference, will be at the top about getting testing done. So no longer it's a, we'll get you tested, but it's a discussion between the benefits and risks of actually getting this testing. Also because there is over-diagnosis and over-treatment of prostate cancer, and therefore that's why the guidelines are not necessarily very clear. Okay, so what causes prostate cancer? Do we know? Unfortunately, I don't have that a good explanation for mm -hmm. that. We know in all cancer subtypes, there is a damage in our really foundation, which is, you know, the DNA, which is in our genes and in our cells. And that damage will lead to the abnormal growth of cells leading to cancer. But we don't know what's that signal. We have, may, we have at least two or three hypotheses about how cancer develops, mm -hmm. uh, the genes play a role, the environmental factors play a role, and then later on in life, your body as a whole, meaning if you have other medical conditions, all of that put together make a cancer diagnosis. So there are different hypotheses. Uh, doctor, if I could ask the question, uh, it seems like, and it's just a general question, it seems like there's a lot of cancer in ac active areas, like, you know, in the stomach, or pancreatic, uh, prostate, like you say, things, the colon cancer. There's a lot going on down there all the time. It's not like we're going to, you know, it just stays the same. So I just wonder if there's, because of there's so much activity, you mentioned lung cancer too, that that's more prevalent as far as, because our body's working all the time. But it seems like it's working a lot in that area of your body that would be a, a possible cause for maybe more cancer down there. Does that, that make any sense? Like are our bodies getting overworked? Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I, I agree with you with that statement. I think mm -hmm. it, it actually follows what I just said about the hypothesis. So we do have our body it's every day fighting against these abnormal cells that eventually become cancerous, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it, we do have a, a, a system that it's surveying that. The problem will be that at some point that system gets overwhelmed by these genes that are bad players. Right. And whenever that happens, that could be the one hypothesis to moving on to a cancer. And then it goes to what you just mentioned, uh, very intelligent, it's the environmental factor. That's when you get into maybe what we're eating maybe plays a role. Maybe what we're, you know, breathing plays a role. When you have that as a second step in the ladder, the first step is the genetic background. Right. The second step, what you're saying, you know, the environment. And then third of all, you get another infection, another virus, or you get something on so top of So all of those that. things pile on top of Play each along. other. I think the hypothesis about cancer diagnosis is, is somewhat that. I know it's an um, impossible question to answer. Oh, ways, but, it, but there's just so much activity going down there. You yeah. know, like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom all the time, or I got to do this, or, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's just so much going on down there. It's always... It's not like, you know, your arm just stays the same or, you know, the blood vessels do the same. Not, the heart works a little real hard, but the, the, down there, it just seems like we hear so much about prostates and, and all that other stuff, the stomach and things like that, because it's just constantly working. And, and like Paige was saying, the environment has a lot to do with that, too. Yeah. And it goes to this topic of prostate cancer. Before prostate cancer, we also have a condition called enlarged prostate, uh, and that's called benign prostate hyperplasia. And that's, to your point just the prostate working harder and harder and harder every day. But that's part of normal 
you know, growth of us. That's right. That's part of what we do. Our body really works more than when you were 15 years old. Right. And so that's uh, that's a finding that we often have, but that doesn't mean that you have cancer. It's just yeah. your body just working more. Mm-hmm. No, so, that's a great segue. Sorry, Paige. No, no, no. I think that's perfect. That's a great segue into my next question because I was looking at this BPE that you just talked about and kind of how that correlates into the symptoms of pro- prostate cancer because you have all these other things, you know, problems with urination, but how does that translate into okay, now I have prostate cancer. How does somebody know to look for those different signs and symptoms? Yeah, that it's a little bit more difficult in the sense that that would be up to the doctors really to know the difference between somebody who has just BPH versus really a more concerning mm-hmm. uh, um, diagnosis of prostate cancer. Symptoms-wise, could be quite not too different. And so symptoms-wise, it could be all the same. But really will be up to their primary care doctor, their urologist, or even sometimes even myself, although I, I, I'm not the doctor who's, mm-hmm. who's seen, uh, you know, enlargement of the prostate. But often you start with, a, uh, with the same symptomatology, which is kind of very tricky then to know. But it's up to the doctors, um, such as the primary care doctors and urologists, to make that difference. So you talked before, you know, whenever we were outside, there are different stages of prostate cancer and the staging that's used for prostate cancer is maybe a little bit different than we might think. Let's talk about what that actually looks like. Great. I think that's a great point because more and more what we're doing in cancer now, it's understanding the cancer biology. And I think that comes with a lot of what we're doing right now across cancer, meaning that right now we use biomarkers. And what are biomarkers? Biomarkers are things that as we learn more about the biology, there are things that we can test. And if it's inside the genes or inside the protein that it's inside the gene that is giving us a signal, that's the biomarker. That signal is what we need to know to learn if the cancer is being driven by that signal and therefore you could actually target that um, signal or that protein and be more specific about your cancer treatment. When you heard the word chemotherapy, chemotherapy for everybody never has been a therapy that is quite um, specific or that it goes to after a target. And so when you hear the word biomarkers, nowadays across all cancers, you are learning more about your biology of your cancer better and that way across all cancer subtypes including prostate cancer we're learning more about the cancer itself and that nowadays goes along into when you have a diagnosis of prostate cancer we will tell you if you're available to have biomarkers or molecular testing which is the word we use to tell you that that plays a role into where is your cancer in terms of staging. And the staging is the word we use to the word we use to, to tell you where the cancer is. Is it just localized to the prostate? Is it outside of the prostate, nearby the prostate? Or is it really gone outside of completely the pelvic region to other places such as the liver, the lungs, or the bones? And sometimes we use biomarkers to tell you where you are in terms of that staging. So using these biomarkers, if somebody does qualify for that, does that allow them to have better types of treatment or more effective types of treatment? Excellent question. So that goes along with the discovery of these biomarkers. If it really changes the management, we will let you know that then it will be worth it to really 
then get the biomarkers because it will change our management. It will change our treatment decisions. So this is a playing a role. I have to say though that it's not in all the the types of uh, of risk of prostate cancers that you have. So not in all we send the biomarkers, but we want to make sure is that you see what happens in prostate cancer is that it is a cancer that is very indolent. What is that? It's slow growing. Majority of cancer, prostate cancer, it will be slow growing. There are a few in which they become a more faster, which is unexpected for this cancer. And those are the tough ones, we say, because those are not going to behave normally as a slow growing. They're going to go very fast. And so we want to try to get who is really that patient who is behaving normally like a slow growing or who is the one who has even more risk and is a little bit more faster in terms of growing the prostate cancer. And so biomarkers can have that role of telling us this patient that you think has a slow growing prostate cancer tumor, maybe should be treated a little bit more aggressive because biomarker is telling you something differently. And so it changes, it changes a lot and it's very important for us to know. So sometimes we will get biomarkers to tell you how your cancer prostate is behaving. So whenever you do biomarkers, you just do this test once or is this a test that happens continuously over the course of treatment? Another excellent question, Paige, because there's another interesting thing in cancer biology is that we are seeing by studies that, for example, if you have initially your cancer where it's located, when it changes, when it goes to different places, when it bathes other organs, it is amazing how we have proved that the biology of the cancer has also changed. And maybe it's a little bit more aggressive right now. Maybe it has a different pathway that we need to target. So learning how the cancer behaves as it also moves has been an area of increasing interest and research. And nowadays we can tell that that is happening. And sometimes we would like biomarkers again to be tested because it might or might not change our treatment landscape. But that's a very much uh, important question and something that is uh, uh, undergoing research right now. So that just made me think of another follow-up question. So you said that the biology of cancer changes over treatment or it can change over treatment. Right. Should patients be discouraged by that? Not at all. I think what uh, I'm trying to say is that in terms of the treatment options, it actually could bring uh, for the future more treatment options for patients. Patients will think that as their cancer progress, right? And that means that if we tell you the cancer is in the prostate and now unfortunately it's on the bones or in the liver, and if we try to actually understand that better, that might bring in the future more options for the cancer as opposed to being thinking that there are now no options at all. So I think in the future it will bring more options as we learn more how to test for these changes in the biology of the cancer. Yeah, it's a continuing to grow field, right? Absolutely. It's, it's ever evolving. So how will somebody know if their treatment is working? Very interesting questions as well. We do uh, uh, a lot of testing. Most of that becomes uh, a PSA testing that we call in the blood, a very simple, straightforward <laughs> test. Uh, that and our impression as we are treating you and the symptoms that you're having also plays a role. And then we also test uh, and do some imaging studies such as, you know, CAT scans or sometimes bone scans and uh, other imaging testing. And we take all of that together. It's almost like a puzzle that we try to put together 
to tell you things are working or we need to talk about other treatments. Great, awesome. So Dr. Guerrero, I think we're running out of time today. So thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. We really appreciate you being on our show today. Thank you for inviting me. It was such a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. So today we've been speaking with Dr. Thomas Guerrero Garcia, a medical oncologist hematologist with the Phelps Health Medical Group. If you missed part of the show or would like to listen to it again, please visit phelpshealth.org. Thanks so much.